Think with me about this hypothetical scenario. Let's say you and a few of your neighbors all arrive at the mailbox at the same time. You know, one of those kind of big community mailboxes like a lot of us use. So let's say you arrive there at the same time. Subsequently, a conversation about current events in the neighborhood, like new HOA fees, er, right? As well as some current events uh, come up in conversation, current events more broadly. After covering a wide range of topics, chatting with one another, one of your neighbors poses this question to two of the individuals who have been most vocal. My son recently identified himself as transgender. Do you think he, or now she, should be able to use the girls' bathroom at school? One of the neighbors asked, simply says, Well, I believe God created every person to be either male or female, both in mind and body. Even though some struggle with feelings to the contrary, I think we need to respect that biological difference between the genders. The other individual who was asked offered this response. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. Unfortunately, I think people like you and your dysfunctional son are only interested in pushing your own politically correct agenda and not God's. You are the reason this country is in such a bad place right now. As those two neighbors walk away from the conversation, you decide to ask the neighbor who posed the question about her opinion of what was just said. This is how she responds. Well, frankly, I found both of those individuals to be incredibly offensive. Keep that mailbox meeting in mind as we look together at another passage from our Way of Grace daily reading plan. I hope you've been able to participate with us as we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew currently. Specifically, we are looking together at Matthew chapter 17. Look with me here at this somewhat obscure story. Uh, It's not one that you get a lot of, it doesn't get a lot of attention. (laughs) It's not one you're going to find like, you know, quoted on a Christian mug or wall plaque. (laughs) Uh, But look at this obscure story that we find in verses 24 through 27. This is what we read. When they, Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Peter said, Yes. And, and when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he... And when he said, when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay, (laughs) interesting story, right? 
So let's take a, let's pull a few phrases out of the passage here and let's unpack those phrases a bit in the hope of hearing what God wants to communicate to us this morning. In the hopes of hearing what God's word is saying through this short account from the gospel of Matthew. So look back with me at verse 24 and the phrase, the two drachma tax, the two drachma tax. So Peter is stopped in Capernaum. That's where Peter lives. This is where Jesus is living at this point as well. So Peter stopped in Capernaum, his place of residence, and he's asked specifically about this tax. Why is Peter the one stopped? We don't know. It might have been because Peter was locally the best known of the disciples at this point. It's not, we're not told in the passage. But notice why he stopped and questioned. There seems to be some uncertainty about whether or not Jesus has paid or will pay what's described here as the two drachma tax. The two drachma tax. Uh, unlike a later conversation in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, the issue here is not about a Roman tax. That's not what they're talking about. This was instead a Jewish temple tax. A Jewish temple tax. Now, was this some policy created by the greedy religious elites down there in Jerusalem? Is that what this is? No, this was actually an Old Testament requirement first found in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 30, this two drachma tax is better known as the half a shekel tax in Exodus. So half a shekel in the Old Testament computes up to, we know this from Josephus as well, the Jewish historian who wrote outside of the Bible in the first century, it actually equals, a half shekel actually equals two drachmas, two drachmas in the time of, at the time of Jesus. So this half a shekel tax mentioned in the book of Exodus was collected from everyone 20 years old and older among the Israelites. Why was it collected? Well, we know from Exodus 30 that it was collected in order to raise funds for the construction and maintenance of the tent of meeting. You remember what that was? The tent of meeting it was a mobile temp, basically a mobile temple, also called the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So as the, as the people of Israel moved out of Egypt into the desert, and there, because of God's judgment, they were kept in the desert for 40 years. Most of you know that story. Before they could enter the promised land. During that time, and, in, and even after they entered the promised land, they had this mobile temple that they would bring with them, and they could set up. And they could meet with God there. They could worship God there. Well, this, this tax was collected to be able to raise funds for the construction and maintenance of that mobile temple called the Tent of Meeting. And then later, it became the Temple of Solomon. The actual brick and mortar temple was constructed in Jerusalem. So, uh, where else do we hear about this in the Old Testament? You may remember that this tax was mentioned in the time of King Joash, that's a right, right around 830 BC. It was mentioned there because the Jerusalem temple 
had fallen into such a sad state of disrepair and God put it on King Joash's heart to actually try to resuscitate, to actually give care and maintenance to the temple. And part of the money, the funds that they had was this two drachma or this half shekel tax. So this half shekel tax was regularly collected for various needs related to the temple facility uh, and its worship. Sometimes animals would be bought for public offering to, to be used for the people. So the question is, why was there uncertainty about Jesus' view regarding the temple tax? Why is this person collecting the tax so unsure that Jesus is, or so uncertain about whether Jesus is willing to pay? We don't know. It's not clear. Maybe word had spread concerning uh, what Jesus declared about himself a few chapters earlier in chapter 12, verse 6, where he said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. We know from John's gospel, from the very beginning of John's gospel, and throughout his ministry, we know from the other gospels as well, when the trial of Jesus was taking place and false witnesses were coming forward, there was a lot of confusion about what Jesus said about the destruction of the temple. It might be enough for us to say that Jesus had already demonstrated to anyone who saw him that he was, through his teaching, it was clear that he was an outsider. And therefore, some might have assumed that he was not interested in supporting the establishment in Jerusalem. As we saw in our main passage, this question about Jesus leads to Jesus' own statement in verse 26. Number two, so he talks about the the fact that the sons are free. That's the next phrase that we want to look at from verse 26. Jesus may have been sitting in the house and overheard the conversation taking place outside between Peter and the temple tax collector. Um, Or he might have known because he's the son of God. It's not really clear. So he may have heard the conversation taking place. So when Peter enters the house, mentioned in verse 25, the teacher wastes no time capitalizing on an extremely teachable moment. This is a great opportunity for him to talk with Peter. Was Peter wrong to answer in the affirmative when questioned by the temple tax collector? No, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. But Peter needed to understand why Jesus was willing to pay this tax. He needed to know the reason Jesus was willing to pay the tax. This is key. Jesus is not willing to pay the tax here because he is required by God to pay the tax. Yes, this tax comes directly from the law of Moses. This tax comes right out of the law of God. But neither Jesus nor Peter nor any of the disciples is obligated to pay that tax as a matter of obedience to the law. This is what Jesus is telling him. You're not obligated to pay. I'm not obligated to pay. But why is that? How does he explain it to him? Look what he does here in verse 25. He explains this to him using an analogy. He puts the question to Peter. What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons, their children, or from others? 
And Peter responds just how most of us would respond if we were there at that moment. He says, from others. Based on that answer, Jesus goes on in verse 26 to highlight the principle that then comes forth. And that principle is this. The sons are free. The sons and daughters are free. Have you heard anything as beautiful as that? The sons are free. The children are free. What does that mean? What is the point that Christ is making here? He is arguing that just as this principle is true for human rulers and their children, it's also true for the heavenly ruler and his children. God and his children. We are free if we are children of God, is what Jesus is emphasizing to Peter. And it changes things, that fact that we are free. It wonderfully changes things. What's clear in this teaching is that Jesus is separating those who are God's children from those who are still obligated to pay the king of heaven's temple tax. That means not everyone who thinks of themselves as one of the children of Israel is in fact a child of God. If you've been reading the the Gospel of Matthew and you haven't picked this up, you need to start from the beginning again. It's, It's everywhere there. This idea that just because of your genetics, it doesn't mean that you've got to pass into the presence of God. That somehow you've merited because where you were born and who you were born to, that somehow you were accepted by God. No, not everyone who would consider themselves one of the children of Israel is in fact a child of God. The difference, of course, in all of this is Jesus. Only those in right relationship with Jesus will be in right relationship with God. Do you believe that? Only those who are in right relationship with Jesus will be in, are in right relationship with God as children of God. Not just servants working behind the scenes. Not just some visitor standing off in the corner. No, we're in right relationship as children, as beloved sons and daughters of God. Of course, this reality also highlights the broader covenant change that jesus is bringing through his ministry he is he has already said or he will make it clear very soon that the temple and its rituals will come to an end jesus will fulfill the law and the prophets as he talked about in chapter 5 he is bringing the words of chapter 9 verse 17 new wine for the people For God's people. New wine. But the temple tax is just one feature of the old wineskins that will soon be discarded. New wine is for new wineskins. You remember reading that? New wine is for new wineskins. And that's new wineskins of freedom in the kingdom of God. New wineskins that represent the fullness of the kingdom of God. 
No more lambs will have their throat slit and be sacrificed before God because the Lamb of God will come and by His blood ratify a new covenant. All the old shadows will find their fullness in the substance of Jesus Christ. That's why we're free, brothers and sisters. That's why we're free. As children of God, through Jesus, the disciples are called to walk now in this freedom according to the new wineskins of the kingdom of God. So if all of this is true, which it is, then why would, why should Jesus and his followers pay this two drachma tax? The answer is found in verse 27, where we find this key phrase, number three, number three, not to give offense, not to give offense. As we've talked about, Jesus is going to pay this tax. He explains why in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, remember, Peter was a net fisherman, wasn't he? (laughs) So he had to be specific here. Just go cast a hook, Peter, and and take the first fish that comes up. And guess what? When you pull that first fish up and open its mouth, you're going to find in there a stator, a silver stator. And the silver stator was worth four drachma. That's what its value was in the ancient world, four drachma. So it was a full shekel, that coin. Take that, says Jesus, and give it to them. Give it to the tax collector. Give it to them, the others, for me and for yourself. So Jesus covers this half shekel tax for both himself and Peter. And he does this, why? In order to not give offense to those collecting the tax in order to give no offense to those overseeing the tax we could say to fellow jews in general to not give offense now we've seen this phrase before we just didn't know we were seeing it this phrase to not give offense is been already used in the gospel of matthew where like in for example in chapter five it's translated there as to cause to sin Or to cause to stumble. In other places in the gospel, to cause to fall away. All the same word. Right? All the same word. And the word is the verb scandalizo. Now, when I say that, you know exactly what English word comes from scandalizo. Right? Yeah. So scandalizo means to cause to stumble. To cause to sin. To cause to fall away. To to give offense. What's interesting here about Christ's motivation, what he's explained, is that two chapters earlier, Matthew describes a situation where some Jewish leaders took issue, where they, took, they took issue because they saw the disciples of Jesus had not washed their hands in the proper way according to the tradition of the elders. Do you remember that story? Chapter 15. And they came to the disciples and they confronted them about this issue of ritual impurity, not cleaning their hands before eating. And this is what Jesus said about this matter of ritual uncleanness. He called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth 
whether you have clean, uh, clean or unclean hands, the kind of food that you're eating, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. When the disciples came and said to him, do, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus, do you know what you, you're causing a little bit of a uh, controversy here, right? You're ruffling feathers, Jesus. Do you know that in what you just said? You understand that? And he answered, Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The rooting up and the pit are both pictures there of God's judgment. There will be judgment in store for those who defile from the mouth by teaching lies about God. In the context, that's what he's pointing to. He'll go on to describe in that same chapter that all the slander, all of the maliciousness, all of the stuff that comes out of us from the heart, that's what defiles us. It's the heart that's corrupt. But how interesting is it? That's Matt. So we looked at Matthew 15, verses 10 through 14. How interesting that Jesus has no problem with offending the Jewish leaders in this instance, but is eager to give no offense when it comes to the temple tax in chapter 17. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? How do we understand that? I think that the point Jesus is wanting to communicate through his words and actions is this. Take a look. Always seek to give no unnecessary offense, especially to those with whom you differ. That's the word to followers of Jesus. That's what Jesus is modeling for us. Always seek to give no unnecessary offense, especially to those with whom you differ. This is what Christ is modeling for us as our, as our teacher, as our Lord. Let's be very clear about this, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ never, ever said or did anything that was unnecessarily offensive. Do you believe that to be true? That's why he's the spotless lamb of God. Jesus Christ never ever did or said anything that was unnecessarily offensive. But that does not mean people were not offended by him. You may recall chapter 13 verse 57 tells us that the people of Jesus' own town, his hometown, the people of Nazareth, it says they took offense at him. They took offense at him. We've seen that many of the religious leaders were regularly offended by Jesus, right? He, he, he always had them stirred up in some way. They regularly were offended by him. But these people stumbled over Jesus, not because he did something wrong, but because he was always right. Always right. 
There was never a time where he was not right. He was always righteous. I think you understand that sinners will necessarily stumble over truth and purity and holiness. Sinners will necessarily stumble over those things. Jesus understood this fact, but he was also and always committed to give no unnecessary offense. That was his commitment. Would Jesus have sinned if he failed to pay the tax? No. But it would have been sinful to do that very thing knowing it would be unnecessarily offensive. What's the difference you're thinking? The difference is this. The issue was not the tax. The issue was caring for others. That was the issue. Caring about others. Why would Jesus, with those who were skeptical or confrontational in his ministry, why would he want to tempt them to focus on his tax noncompliance rather than his call to repentance? Why distract them with such a minor thing? Why in the world would he do that? Why would he want to add to the possibility that they would focus on these minor issues rather than the major issues he sought to highlight? Yes, there were things that were out of control in his ministry, out of his control in his ministry, in the sense that that, that that very thing still happened with his opponents because they got on him about Sabbath violations. Because they got on him because he didn't treat it, he didn't uh, adhere to the traditions of the elders. And they wanted, to, they wanted to focus on those things. But Jesus knew that was going to happen. And he turned those situations around. He used those instances to focus on major issues. You have a problem with my, my disciples collecting grains, heads of grain as they walk through the fields? You have a problem with that on the Sabbath? Well, guess what? Let me talk to you about the Sabbath. Let me tell you about what the Old Testament says about the Sabbath. And let me tell you that I, the Son of Man, am Lord of the Sabbath. And so he was able to bring out that truth when he understood that they would go that direction. But he did not want to give unnecessary offense and therefore distract, add to the issues that he knew were on the horizon. This is the point, brothers and sisters. When we're thinking about what this text actually says and in interpreting interpreting this text rightly soundly the point is this matthew's first readers his jewish christian audience when they read this gospel two thousand years ago almost two thousand years ago it was very important that they thought carefully about not giving unnecessary offense to their jewish neighbors jesus modeled that for them Matthew wanted to make sure they understood that. Yeah, he confronted the religious leaders routinely. He did, in love, confront them and challenge them. He rebuked them in love. But Matthew wanted them to see as well that he never, ever gave unnecessary offense. Not even once. 
And that they were to model that very thing as they lived in their Jewish communities, confessing Jesus as Messiah. You know that they were experiencing persecution. You know that they were experiencing pressure to go back to the old ways. Years later, after Jesus first spoke those words, after this incident took place with the temple tax collector, years later, another Jewish man, the Apostle Paul, spoke to yet another group of disciples about this same issue. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews. Give no offense to Greeks. Give no offense to the church of God. Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. That's basically everyone. That covers everybody in your life. Now remember, this is the same letter where we find this statement. Take a look. This is from the opening chapter of the, of the book. But we preach Christ crucified a scandalon. A scandalon to Jews. Scandalon, a stumbling block. A stumbling block to Jews and folly, foolishness to Gentiles. Paul understood, as Jesus did, that the gospel could be offensive to unbelieving Jews and Greeks. But if this was ever the case, he wanted his readers to make sure it was the truth about Christ that others found offensive, not any kind of prideful, insensitive, foolish, unreasonable, or combative behavior from Christ's followers. The woman at that mailbox meeting that I described at the outset this morning of the message, she may have found both of those Christians offensive, but in one of those responses, only one, it was simply the truth that offended her. It was the truth that offended her. Paul said this, that he would, take a look. What was the heart of Paul? He said that he would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Don't you love that? That's his strategy. He would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Jesus was often a stumbling block. But the apostle was careful not to place any other obstacle on a person's path. Does that make sense to you? Jesus was already there. There was already a stumbling block. Paul was going to do everything that he could not to put anything else there that would unnecessarily trip someone up. He described this very careful approach in these terms a few verses later in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. He said this, take a look. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That means he was not only careful to give no unnecessary offense to his Jewish or to his Greek or to his fellow believer, right? 
He was not only careful to give no unnecessary offense to his listeners, but if possible, to find common ground with them from which he could build trust, from which he could minister effectively for the sake of Christ. Is that your heart? Is that your strategy? Is that your mindset when it comes to others and reaching others? Do you also seek to win others to Christ with this same perspective? I say this partly because, sadly, there are some in evangelical circles today who seem to care more about winning temple tax arguments than they do winning other people to Christ. For these, giving offense is just par for the course. For some reason, it seems to them to always be necessary to offend others. In fact, it's often viewed as a badge of honor. Brothers and sisters, we need to reject this kind of behavior. We need to reject this kind of behavior both inside and outside of the church. When Christians are unnecessarily offensive, we dishonor the one whose name we bear. The one who was never, ever unnecessarily offensive, not even once. And yet none of us can make that same claim, can we? God humbles us when we see this. All of us have been unnecessarily offensive at one time or another. And we will be again, sadly. Sometimes we give unnecessary offense because we major on minors when it comes to the truth, right? We want to argue with everybody about this little tiny part of Scripture and say, oh, oh you're not predispensational, you're not premillennial, whoa, 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 whoa. Right, we want to push, push, push. We become the people that Timothy, Paul warned Timothy about who get into these controversies about words, arguments about words. Trailing off into myths, we become that very thing, sadly. Only growth in God's word can help us find the perspective that we need to major on minors and let the minors be minors. We need the word of God in that way. Sometimes we offend because of a controlling spirit. It can feel safer at times to draw lines everywhere, especially between and around people and groups of people. You see, that's not a trusting spirit. That's a controlling spirit. Sometimes, at other times, we offend because we won't take the time to listen and understand where someone else is coming from. We simply won't take that time. We assume, we assume that we know where they're coming from. And we are more interested in saying what we want to say than hearing what they need us to hear. Right? That's where we slip up. That's when we often give offense. And on other occasions, we are insensitive simply because we look down on others. We won't often admit it, but deep down, 
we look down on them. We tell ourselves, this person does not deserve my respect. They're not like me. They haven't achieved what I've achieved. They're always bumbling, failing, whatever, according to not meeting my expectations and my standards. And so deep down, whether we say it out loud or not, we say this person does not deserve my respect. So when we offend them, we blame it on them, which then deepens our lack of respect for that person. Brothers and sisters, friends, we are in desperate need of humility, aren't we? We desperately need humility. So where can we look this morning in light of this offense-giving heart, this offense-producing heart? Where can we look? We look at this same Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 6. What does it say? It says this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Think about that for a minute. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, says Jesus. You remember who who he was talking about in the context there? John the Baptist. Are you the Christ or should we expect someone else? Are you the Christ, Jesus? Because this isn't going the way that I thought it would. Are you the Messiah, Jesus? Because I'm languishing in a prison. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Even John the Baptist, no one's been born greater of women women than John the Baptist, is what Jesus himself said. Even John the Baptist struggled. He struggled. His conceptions about who Jesus was didn't match up with what he saw Jesus doing. He had a box. He had a frame, right? And Jesus wasn't fitting in that box. Uh, Jesus wasn't fitting in that frame. And he was troubled. You see, brothers and sisters, if John the Baptist could struggle like that, we know we can as well. We know that we can struggle too. And we can be offended by Jesus even if we don't say it out loud. But he turns us back to himself and he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is, do you want to be in a place of blessedness? Then get right with me. Understand who I am in truth and walk in the truth. Respect the, reject the spirit of this age. Let the Spirit of God show you who I am. Similarly, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9.33, he quoted two verses from the prophet Isaiah. He said this, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Not everyone will stumble over Christ. Some of us will embrace him, will believe in him, as the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's become the cornerstone. Christ, our cornerstone. Please hear me. God's ultimate call to you this morning is a call to lean on Jesus rather than stumble over Him. To lean on Jesus rather than stumble over Jesus. You don't want to do that. Why does he want us to lean on Jesus? Because only he, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, can forgive 
our offensiveness. And He can transform, He can cleanse the offense-giving heart. Such good news. He can transform that heart. And you know what? We've already been reminded of that fact this morning. There's a, there's a detail I've left out of our study of this passage. I saved the best for last though. That detail is this. The fact that God can transform our offense-giving hearts has already been pointed to in terms of a miraculous means, the supernatural provision that God gives to us. It's been pointed out already in our main passage. Just as Peter eventually and amazingly plucked a coin out of the mouth of a fish, we too can experience God's perfect provision in ways we would not expect what did that coin represent supernatural power to give no offense supernatural provision in order to give no offense do you want the holy spirit to work in your life in that way to give no offense miraculous means that god provides for us to become like christ in this way and so, brothers and sisters, as we have received patience, let us show it. As we have been given grace, let us give it. Let us be merciful in light of His mercy. For we are now sons and daughters of the King. And we are free. Aren't we? We are free. We are free now for what? To do what? We are free now to love as we've been loved. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians to those who were wrapped up and embroiled and tangled in obedience, some false obedience to the law? He said circumcision, uncircumcision, none of that matters, brothers and sisters. What matters is this, faith expressing itself through love. And so now we are free. To love as we've been loved. Let's go to God. Let's pray in light of the supernatural provision, the perfect provision that God offers us through His Holy Spirit because of Jesus. Would you pray with me?